The Navy is many things, sailors, ships, submarines, airplanes. In some sense, it's a science and technology enterprise, you know, STEM. Recently, on a visit to the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Dahlgren, Virginia, I caught up with Joseph McGettigan, a former Navy captain who's now director of the STEM Center at the Naval Academy. We started with a basic question. Well, tell us more about the STEM Center, because I guess I'm a little surprised there's a STEM Center, because I would think STEM (laughs) is endemic to everything that goes on at the Academy. Many years ago, the Navy figured out that there wasn't enough STEM majors coming from American universities to fill all the jobs that the Navy would need. So they started to do STEM outreach to middle school kids, high school kids, to try to get them interested in pursuing STEM degrees in college so that there would be enough available. And the Naval Academy, being an educational facility within the Navy, was looked at as kind of the best place to run that type of outreach from. So we have a team of people there. That's what we do. We teach students about STEM subjects. Every opportunity we can, we try to get them to come to the Naval Academy. So we show everything that is available there. We have tremendous facilities, especially for engineering and math and science. So we try to showcase that. If they get interested in the Naval Academy, want to come to the Naval Academy, that's an added benefit. But that's not 100% of what we do. We're just trying to get them to pursue STEM degrees and then come to work for DOD maybe sometime in the future. Sure, for the Navy writ large, it must be useful to maybe push STEM even in an ROTC program because not everyone can go to the Naval Academy. Correct, yes. And we work with a lot of bases around the world, actually, because every one of them will have some type of STEM outreach, whether it's to a DOD school in another country or It's with the local schools around the base. And we try to work with the scientists and engineers that do that type of outreach to make sure that they have exciting and interesting programs and can do a really credible job of, as I call it, plant the seed, you know, in some young mind that, hey, this stuff's really cool. I think I'd like to do that someday. What's your assessment of the quality of the recruits and the people going into STEM from high school or mid-college at this point? Do we still have a pretty good base in the United States? We, we do. And, you know, I, and I keep saying that one of the good parts about being associated with this position is that I get to see those kids. And it kind of reaffirms your faith in the kids that we have in this country because I get to see some just absolutely amazing kids that have been doing exciting things with engineering and math and science for many, many years. And then they come to the Naval Academy and you start showing them some of the equipment and some of the facilities and they just take off. Yeah, it is very rewarding. Talk about this concept of warrior engineer because... I guess it's an old concept in the Navy, but because Mm -hmm. software and digital design and all of these technologies are just taking over what's behind all of the kinetic activity that warfare entails. Talk about that idea. So especially when I was here at Dahlgren, I was here 2004 to 2007 as a commanding officer. And you have a lot of these engineers here that really understand how they can impact the fleet. There's a lot of engineers around the country that do work but they don't understand the importance of what it means to the warfighters. And that's the thing that's exciting about Dahlgren. And and I used to say this a lot, that when an engineer at Dahlgren works on something, they understand the urgency that they need to get it to the fleet as soon as possible so it can help the sailors that are out there now or potentially save their lives. And an engineer in industry might not have that same timeline. 
especially the scientists and engineers that are at universities, sometimes they just want to study something for the sake of studying it. And, you know, they would wonder, I wonder if I modify this, or I wonder if I change that. I wonder if I can do this again. Let's just try this again in, in a different way. As opposed to the engineers that are here, they understand that, no, this is important. This is going to make somebody's life better. And I need to get this out the door as soon as possible to make it happen. And at a place like Dahlgren, of course, you have civilian and uniformed and contractor engineers, and they're working on firing ranges. You can see the kinetic effects of firing a weapon and what happens and so forth. At the academy, how do you instill that when they don't get the direct exposure to the effects of what they're working on that they might later on at a place like Dahlgren? So one of the things that's really exciting about the Naval Academy is they emphasize hands-on engineering. So every student there, regardless of what they study, at the end of their four years, have to do a capstone project. And that capstone project is some hands-on project that they can decide what they want to do. They have to get it approved, but they can build something. They can take something that's already out there take it apart, study it. In some way, they have to do something that's hands-on to take all the things that they've learned and put it to use. Sure. And we've been talking a lot about digital engineering today, and we've been talking a lot about hypersonics and software revolutionary engineering and so forth. Is there still work to be done in the metallurgy and the explosive and then the chemical aspects of all of this? A lot of times we do get enamored with the brand new things. But there is always the aspect of taking what we have and just making it that much better. So you mentioned metallurgy, you know, having materials that don't corrode. So, again, it makes shipboard life so much better when you don't have to chip and paint all the time. Sounds, you know, like a a simple thing, but it's actually not. And it does take a lot of time and energy. The ships, they operate in salt water. The salt water's always trying to eat away at the hull. So if you can, you know, come up with a better solution, it's always a good thing. Sure. And just a little bit more about your own career, because you retired from Dahlgren 15 years ago almost. Yeah. You're still a Navy employee, I guess. You, yes. You can take the, uh, the uniform <laughs> off, but you can't take the boy out of the Navy altogether. Tell us about your own history. I had a 30-year career in the Navy. Started off as a surface warfare officer my first ship, I was the ASW officer doing anti-submarine warfare and uh, just was fascinated by all of that. So I went to the Naval Postgraduate School for undersea warfare. And while I was there, I was doing pretty well. And, and they asked me if I would like to become an engineering duty officer and do this full time. And that kind of fascinated me. And I thought it sounded like a, a neat option. So I became an engineering duty officer. So then I was always working kind of in between the operational Navy and the engineers and scientists that were building things. So, you know, I took that operational experience that I had, and I was able to apply it with the engineering background that I had. It's often that somebody will develop something that technically is really terrific, but you look at it and you say, that'll never survive you know, five minutes on a ship mm-hmm. when, when it's operating at sea. And, and do you realize an 18-year-old kid needs to be able to operate and maintain that piece of equipment? So having that operational experience, I think, was always critical with uh, the engineering background. And as a retired officer who spent a lot of time on board, I've always wondered, do you never want to set foot on a ship oh, no. deck again? Or <laughs> do you love going on cruises? Or do you operate your own boat? What is, how does that I mean, affect I, I, a person? It, it gets in your blood. 
It's a fascinating thing. You know, people used to always say, how can you go out on a ship for nine months? And it's like, it's an amazing thing that when you're out there and everybody is operating as a team, doing the job that they're trained to do, it's a wonderful thing. The time just flies by so fast when you're out there operating. And it's just a great place to be. It's a great feeling to know that you're able to make a difference when you're out there. And they do feed you pretty well out there. Yes. <laughs> That's the benefit of the Navy, as opposed to uh, a lot of the other services. <laughs> All right, excellent. Retired Navy Captain Joseph McGettigan, now director of the STEM Center at the Naval Academy. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, 
And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, One thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, But we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, 
I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.